to, to acknowledge the people who have who are not here physically but have been trying to figure out different time zones. I want to acknowledge especially Usha Rahman who was here with us in CMS last year and it's past midnight in Hyderabad and she's still up watching us so thank you Usha and all my friends in Mexico who are giving up their, their lunch time uh, to tune in to a YouTube stream so I'm really grateful for that. Um, I think the one universal truth I learned in media studies the last couple of years is that after the first few seconds of the video, people just stop watching. <laughs> um, some of it was all a favor, and I'll just give you the too long, didn't read version of this, of this project, which is if you find yourself uh, making decisions about online privacy of youth, which is basically a position you can expect to be in if you're a programmer, if you're a designer, if you have any social initiative that is basically not gated and requiring an ID at the entrance, uh, or if you find yourself in a position where you're giving kids or youth advice on their own privacy, you will likely follow your heart and will probably try your very best to be sensible. And that's really great. Uh, but you should know that your advice, our advice really, will be very loaded with ideas that are actually contradictory to our entire system of progressive beliefs. Uh, as well meaning adults who will sometimes give uh, youth advice uh, that basically deny the possibility of them being subjects of rights today. Uh, we deny them sometimes the possibility of agency. Uh, we will trip up talking about online risk in ways that uh, either frame those like people that know everything about online risk, which is kind of epistemically impossible, and also can frame us as people who like, know nothing about online risk and are just bluffing. Um, most importantly, in my opinion, uh, sometimes when we talk about online risk in youth, uh, we are committed to the awful idea not only that victims should be blamed, victims, for example, of sexting scandals, but that their individual decisions matter more than the decisions of the people around them, sort of denying a sense of collective responsibility. Um, you probably think that none of this actually resonates with you and you would never, never think of your privacy that way. Uh, my contention is that despite our very best intentions, because we live in a classist, misogynistic, ageist system uh, that has shaped our views of everything, including youth online privacy, um, that's basically just the case. Uh, the devil is in the details. Uh, and the point of this presentation is to explain how it is that uh, narratives about youth online privacy uh, show the very, very worst of us, but also, on a hopeful note, how organizations are currently working <coughs> all over the continent to fix this, to fix this problem. And that is the core of my talk today. So how do allies who, who work with youth in informal learning contexts uh, promote all this critical thinking on privacy? Um, so basically, I look at ways that educators and adult allies uh, work to think about, retake, and engage with, and circulate ideas about um, online privacy and youth. The findings I summarize today are the result of 18 interviews that I carried out with practitioners from uh, all over the continent, from Canada to Argentina, in 12 countries. Um, as well as, as organizational literature of their own works and the works of other organizations I didn't interview. Basically by this I mean from privacy game proposals to classroom materials and campaign videos. Um, like in all fields, I stand in the, in the, on the shoulders of giants, some of whom have passed through these very same buildings, some of them are actually sitting 
in this room today, and so I try to put the findings uh, in my thesis in conversation with academic literature and youth and privacy on surveillance studies and also on adolescent development, although this will certainly not shine through as much uh, in this presentation today. I want to start by acknowledging that um, this academic research has nothing to do with me just being clever and thinking that if I just thought and read hard enough or long enough, I would have something uh, to say that would change anything in the world. I think that there are many life stories embedded in this process. So I will tell you the short version of one of them, which is basically mine. Um, when I arrived in comparative media studies, uh, it was after a decade of volunteering and working as a technology capacity builder. Uh, these are the so-called circuit writers. Uh, it's a Methodist preaching method that then inspired the use of, of this term. For the sake of time, I will not go uh, long into it. Um, but what I want to say is that the important part of this concept of technological capacity building uh, which, by the way, is a term I adopted for my friend Derek Slater, who will also be watching this video later, um, is that we get to promote conversations in different parts of civil society that otherwise would not be happening. And so we, we get this sort of privileged access to see the relationship between technology and society from different types of organizations. And in my case, it was uh, two different spaces, the space of digital rights with the focus on uh, openness movements, civic technology, and also the, on the other side, um, through my work with UNICEF, I, I got a, a sense of what work in the youth rights field looked like. Um, in a world where collaboration gets sort of thrown around in, and put as an empty promise in grant proposals, I think it's very important to say that these two movements, in my experience, were not really not collaborating. They, they were not just not even collaborating, they were there were very strong tensions between them. Um, in fact, for me, the snapshot that best captures uh, these tensions comes from a global space, the Internet Governance Forum, which is one of the biggest uh, internets on uh, digital rights and, again, internet governance topics. Um, it features dozens of sessions from all so-called stakeholder groups, from the academy, industry, uh, technical community, whatever that means, uh, civil society, um, and so basically the biggest players in the field of youth and media are there, and so are the digital rights organizations. Um, they each run their types of sessions, so youth rights people do the child protection online sessions, and then the digital rights organizations do the more traditional freedom of expression on the internet sessions. I participated as an internet society fellow in 2015, and I went to all the sessions of both teams, and I felt very alone in doing so. Uh, I didn't really find others who had an interest in what has been framed as a battle between uh, both sides of this coin. Now, I did not discover anything new. Um, in the early 2000s, uh, people who, who do youth research in media studies described this sort of antagonistic framing between uh, youth safety online and digital rights and how it limited the collaboration between both. Uh, and whereas there is little sort of organizational evidence of this, which makes sense because it would be kind of like, oh, we will not sit down to work with these people, which wouldn't really make sense. Uh, one of the people I interviewed for my research, Mariana Bonesh from Internet Lab, which is a research organization in Brazil, uh, she articulated two elements of this tension very eloquently. So quoting her, uh, very, a few years ago, when we were speaking about digital rights and the role of 
uh, most civil society organizations was to defend free speech or privacy online, it was as if you would not understand the other side of the table, police worrying about child pornography. So on one side, the sort of police side, prosecution of crimes online, and then on the other side, civil society, you have organizations telling them that this was not such a big issue if you compared it with benefits uh, that the internet was bringing. So going for child rights was in a way uh, to bring authoritarian policies to the internet. To me, this was a major red flag, uh, the internet being authoritarian for the sake of youth. And so what are the implications for NGO work, for the market, even for basic internet infrastructure, if the rights of youth and the rights of adults get framed as either or? Who benefits most from this antagonistic framing? Now, this presentation is taking place at a time when the authoritarian side of the internet is very much part of public discourse uh, in the US, I think, especially uh, since the discussions, the very public discussions on the role of social media uh, and internet companies on electoral outcomes since Donald Trump's victory last year, uh, and essentially the weekly scandals that if they would each for public authority and each legislative outrage uh, basically bringing us to this very weak discussion on system foster bills and Cambridge Analytica. Uh, bear in mind that the context I'm describing is a legacy of, an, I mean, the dichotomy I'm describing is a legacy of another context, a context before Edward Snowden's revelations that confirmed uh, sort of very widespread, very deep surveillance uh, and so deep corporate cooperation that could no longer be ignored. Uh, my point is that not, not that this division existed before, it was cool to talk about how, they, how authoritarian the internet could be, but rather that it has long, run long enough for institutional setups from funding to long-standing relationships to mirror this division. And so in digging deeper into this tension, uh, the elements at stake, I, in my opinion, are all related to our visions of childhood, youth, and technology, uh, many of which we can pinpoint and diagnose through media analysis. Quoting um, Andrea Clark from Head and Hands, which is a Montreal-based organization that supports uh, youth uh, using harm reduction approaches and that I interviewed in this project, quoting uh, her, there's this tendency to be both dismissive and alarmist when it comes to youth use of technology. Somehow they are victims of technologies, but we also have the feeling that they are using technology too much. Either they are savvy and competent and we should work with them and trust them and grow our knowledge with them, or they're just not and they're at risk. There is this old dichotomy of not trusting them, thinking that they don't understand what privacy is, but also decrying the ubiquitous nature of tech in their lives. It's natural, I think, that these moral panics would get amplified in youth online safety campaigns, especially when they are in this awkward spot where they need sexual and reproductive rights. This says, think before you sext. 10 reasons not to sext, which is a message that, in my opinion, is very reminiscent of abstentionist discourse in sexual education and also happened to be the, the title of a series of videos promoted in Mexico by public institutions, corporations like Google Mexico and a Spanish NGO. Now, the videos themselves have more nuanced, more youth-friendly privacy messages that are actually more progressive than this, but the general campaign framing um, sort of elicited a very widespread response from civil society organizations in Mexico, 
Uh, again, on the other side of the coin, sort of arguing that this framing itself was very much putting the burden on the victim, not on the person violating their consent. Um, Amy Rickman in the United States, uh, through her book and her research on rural adolescence and girlhood and media migration, reminds us that the fears for safety have long accompanied uh, females' involvements in US society, and they continue, they persist for young women on social media citing studies where parents worry more for the safety of their daughters than for their sons. Um, framings like this, in my opinion, uh, support a narrative of kids, especially girls, spending too much time online, sending too many pictures of themselves on the one hand, and not understanding the consequences of their acts on the other. Now, I think that there is something positive to be said about this campaign, which is that at least it appeals to uh, you know, the idea of thinking before sexting because it concedes that you actually have a choice ultimately uh, and that you know, their best bet was in persuading them to making a different choice. Um, not you know, to force them by permanently monitoring them, uh, you know, surveilling their entire online activity and threatening to take an activity away from them if they break the rules. Which, as weird as it sounds, is not something that can be taken for granted. Um, the internet of parents and bloggers is full of posts reviewing, you know, the latest spyware to use on your kids, uh, tips on how to sneak into your social media accounts, and all sorts of like weird ways to enact parental surveillance, right? So there are parents who will be trying to keep their kids safe because they believe that this comes out of a good place of trying to protect their kids. Uh, they basically decide to also take any form of privacy away from them. Um, I guess in their minds, kids are not to be trusted in, under any circumstances. And so like advocacy efforts of this type have two layers to them. And understanding of risk that according to one of the interviewees in this project is laughable. And according to a privacy scholar, a misunderstanding of privacy. Patricio Velasco in Derechos Digitales, which is an NGO in Chile that is doing research on youth and privacy to, be, uh, to sort of be better equipped as an institution to navigate the discussion on personal data protection that is happening in the Chile Congress right now, says that the logic of online protection presupposes more or less total knowledge. It presupposes more or less total knowledge of existing threats and best practices. Appealing to control relies on defined, limited situations that we get to know only from adult points of view. And it is an erroneous presupposition. To exert control over others tacitly implies that one is aware of all the threats and that aspiration seems laughable. On the other hand, uh, let's say that just for the sake of argument, that we could understand actually all the threats and all the best practices. Even then, privacy uh, scholar Daniel Salov uh, discusses this as a false dichotomy of privacy versus security, uh, debunking the myth that more surveillance will lead to more secure lives for everyone. Uh, his book, Nothing to Hide, is clearly not on his interest course. <laughs> I don't pretend to overlook the fact that this contradictory discourse, where it is simply impossible for youth to win, you know, or for privacy to be deemed as worthy of security, is only related to the use of technology. I think this discussion fits into a larger landscape of youth development, surveillance culture, moral panics, and oppression. And because technology capacity builders or media makers or researchers, we really commit to invest ourselves in the dismantling of oppressions, then we need to engage in initiatives where youth are recognized as subjects with specific developmental needs, yes, but also with agency. We don't need to take choices away from them. 
We need initiatives where youth are not just potential citizens in the future, but subjects of rights today. And those rights are the right not just to safety, but also to privacy and sexual and reproductive health. And we need to work towards a vision where technology, regulation, and practices are aligned both with youth and adult rights, especially the rights of those marginalized adults who are currently under threat of surveillance because of infrastructure that has been put into place for the sake of protecting youth. So if we take this to heart, if, if we're really interested um, in doing youth safety online the right way, we have a big challenge, which is <clears throat> sorting through all these existing bodies of work to find evidence or inspiration. Uh, you know, we have lots of victim blaming, never post your stuff advice. It seems like the stranger danger advice of 2018. Um, Nathan Fisk makes sense of, of these um, education initiatives through the lens of pedagogies of surveillance, where it is trusted adults that are in the end the arbiters of risk and appropriateness, casting suspicion on the social practices of youth. Um, but organizations worldwide, and especially in the Americas, which is my region of interest, are working already on this job, especially in Latin America, where youth leadership has brought new organizations that work on these topics, new campaigns, and have tried to, to bridge this um, traditional divide. Now, in telling you about the motivations and, and the tensions underlying this project, I have already sort of told you about the tensions that they themselves recognize, so I would like to now move on to the central characteristics of their work. Um, the first point I want to make is that to find these organizations, if you Google youth privacy in the names of American continent uh, countries, you will actually not find any of them. That is because they don't self-identify as organizations who work on youth and privacy. I mean, you have to try Googling that. I, at least I did have to try that. Um, these are the things that they call their own work. So this is basically a heads up for people who think that there is no youth and privacy work taking place, especially in Latin America, and that you need to bring European organizations to do it. You are wrong. Of course it exists. They just don't call themselves what you and I would call them. Um, now moving to like the real uh, characteristics of their work. The first one that stood out was co-design. Now, from my work with, with Sasha in the co-design studio and the design justice uh, project, I know that participatory is a term that gets thrown around a lot, and everybody uh, you know, calls their project participatory just because of that people talk on it, or because there's no sort of explicit, you should not give your feedback instruction. Uh, but I think that youth participation especially is more complicated than that. So I was happy to find two organizations among the, seven, the 18 that I interviewed that do co-design work with youth. One of them is Faro Digital, which is a brilliant uh, and young organization in Argentina made of new communications, like young communications professionals that used to work for the government and decided to do meaningful work through an NGO setup. Uh, they collaborate with academics like Lionel Barossi in Chile, who are moving the co-design uh, agenda forward in youth and media studies in the region. And to quote Ezequiel, who is the director of, of this organization, to raise awareness in youth, we need to co-work rather than just bring an adult-centric view of the responsible use, uh, safety, and privacy. Um, you know, advocacy campaigns that don't uh, manage to, to bridge the gap that uh, scholars like Lena Boy or Alice Marvick have pointed out as sort of the, the perception gap between what we think are youth uh, 
experiences of privacy, what you actually perceive their experiences of privacy to be. Uh, if we don't manage to bridge it, we don't really have a chance to, to do effective campaigning. And one way to bridge it is through co-design. Now, what does co-design look like in practice? For Faro Digital, this is basically design workshops with teenagers, where they start by talking about media practices, identifying things they find problematic and things they find cool, and working together on design solutions, even if it's just speculative solutions to fix the problems they find. Uh, basically, this kind of work led them to a campaign that was not produced by adults but by you on a different take of what to do with sexting, basically to, to promote anonymous sexting. Co-design is also present in the work of the Equality Project in the University of Ottawa, which is, I guess, a research lab of my dreams outside of the MIT. Uh, <laughs> that studies privacy and other digital economy policies through the, through the lens of equality and really through the lens of inequality. Um, they also did a co-design project. But I want to speak about them on another point, which is institutional youth involvement. Uh, they were the only organization I interviewed that actually had a youth advisory board and that actually presents a very beautiful rationale behind it, which is that youth engagement is not a program. One person cannot represent many. And debate, especially intergenerational debate, is a learning tool. Working with, not for, youth is not only the way that organizations that practice, um, it's not the only way that these organizations practice what they preach. Hidden Hands is an organization I also interviewed in Canada, and their work in privacy takes part through their sexual education program, but they also have very strong institutional alignment in terms of confidentiality practices and privacy policy to defend youth's right to privacy. And that is because they recognize that the youth they work with have undue contact with the judicial system and not aligning their own policies with the right to confidentiality would put them at greater risk rather than serving them. Another characteristic of work being done to defend youth rights is basically addressing the gaps in the available services to them. And so I think that people who work in the field of youth and media in the US all are familiar with the work of Anne Collier who has been very famous over decades for her sensible and really you know, informative and nuanced writing about youth and, and online safety. Uh, she has followed all the academic trends, the practitioner trends. She understands the corporate and school ecosystem. So basically, whenever she says that she's found the window of opportunity, I think it's time for us to shut up and listen. Uh, and the window of opportunity that she found in the US was an internet helpline. Uh, she explains, um, before she set out to do this, the U.S. did not have an internet helpline, which is basically an established line of communication that functions as a new intermediary layer uh, that helps users both on the ground and then people who are providing the internet services. So users get help uh, and perspective, companies get moderation, um, companies' moderation teams get pre-screened context, and this is, a, I guess, a different take on what Claudia was discussing earlier in the day. And so at a time when, when content escalation is one of the main models of addressing online harassment, I think that I Can Helpline really provides a service with a youth perspective um, that fits within the current solutions. Uh, something that I really love about the way Anne describes her work at I Can Helpline is that uh, a lot of the times teachers will call in sort of saying, you know, we have this big problem or someone posted this on Instagram. And so, you know, the content actually needs to be reported on the app first. 
And so there is a part of the process where they just send the teachers back to the kids at school to figure out how exactly you report a post on Instagram. And so I feel like it's a way of supporting the local leadership in the schools that are the kids in the end, the one training the teacher. And that takes me to a different organization that is also supporting local leadership, Mozilla Foundation. And that, I think, is a lot in part because of the work of people like Vanessa Reinsmith that I'm honored sitting in this room today. Um, Mozilla Foundation, since you know, decades ago, has long been uh, one of the key players in the digital rights space globally. Uh, in recent years, their learning initiative has put out some of the most interesting web literacy curriculum. Um, but in an interview with Chad Sanzing, uh, who works for Mozilla Learning, um, something that really shows me was that as a community that's very distributed geographically, the push is to support local leadership through the Mozilla Fellows. Some CMS alum are Mozilla Fellows today. And I think it was basically uh, because of the work of people like Vanessa who, who have really pushed a global organization to work locally that we can talk about how lo uh, local support uh, comes first when working on youth and privacy. Which brings me to another point uh, that was common in many of the organizations, but I want to, uh, to exemplify with the work of TEDIC, which is a digital rights organization in Paraguay, uh, that is famous in the region for their super successful counter surveillance campaigns. Um, they have worked really hard to leave behind the traditional narratives of digital rights defense uh, and advocacy to focus on what surveillance means for trans people, for women journalists, and now also for youth. Um, I'm quoting Sasha on this again, but I think it is by looking at the way that most marginalized people are surveilled that we will learn about not just the workings of the system, but about the creative ways that people are resisting this surveillance. I think it is no surprise that two of the organizations I interviewed, which are Sulabatsu in Costa Rica and UNICEF Brazil, are using interactive experiences as a way to approach topics of privacy with youth. Sulabatsu is a, is a cooperative that is currently developing a tabletop game on privacy, and UNICEF Brazil has been extremely successful in reaching youth through the Caletas project which is a theatrical experience on Facebook where youth engage with a chatbot in a series of audiovisual materials that immerse them in a scenario that deals with non-consensual image sharing or the so-called revenge porn. Um, these are really interesting takes on what youth-friendly language means. But then the sort of use of language quickly turned into a legal discussion with Article 12 in Mexico with strategic litigation and reminded me that there is no such thing as youth-friendly language in uh, privacy notices, which are sort of the cornerstone of uh, personal data protection. When you don't have your friendly language, how can you expect consent? And if you cannot consent, what does that tell us about their role as users of the platforms we're creating? Um, I guess I am the only person standing in between you and wine, so it's time to start um, speeding through these last topics. Um, uh, Internet Lab doesn't just focus, and, and other organizations don't just focus on, you know, potential implications uh, for youth in terms of legislation. They actually look at judicial outcomes 
And so Internet Lab did a groundbreaking research on how uh, non-consensual image sharing was getting treated by courts in Brazil and how, in turn, young women were being discriminated against by the system. And finally, the importance of a rights-based approach. Uh, I think that the antidote to focusing on what people cannot do or should not do is to focus on what it is that they can do because it is actually the right to do. And that was the core of many of the organizations I've mentioned already, but other organizations that I haven't yet uh, mentioned. Um, and especially an institution that really blew my mind when, when I was originally just going to interview IDOs, which was the Office of the Privacy Commissioner in Canada. Go Canada. <laughs> uh, basically, a regulator that is a privacy educator's dream with a super progressive and meticulously crafted library of resources for the classroom, both in English and French, all guided by the idea that youth are, yes, subjects of rights today, and that one of those rights is the right to privacy. I could go on and on about the actual findings, but I want to stop and move, to a, move on to the last methodological note, which is my view about what research for advocacy can mean. Um, aside from my thesis, I decided to publish individual blog posts uh, about each interview um, on the Center for Civic Media blog, which means that after each interview, I am drafting a, a post that I then send back to the interviewees. They are free to participate in the editing process, and some of them have actually become co-authors with a number of edits that they've suggested and that I've accepted. At the end of the whole process, I intend to organize a hangout with the people who are interested because many of the participants said that they actually wanted to meet other people working on youth privacy in the region. One limitation that these research cannot overcome is that um, there were no youth involved, which means that this is another boring adult presentation <laughs> on youth. And I promise to remedy this after CMS because I guess this project has made me more committed in reclaiming tech discourse. Uh, with the communities that have been marginalized from shaping it, uh, like youth, but also older women. Next project. <laughs> and now that I'm beginning to end, um, I want to take my last minutes um, to say that I'm really grateful to all my friends in civil society and all my allies who have extremely busy lives and jobs and still made my you know, time to participate in the research, with as IRB consent form signing participants, but also as external advisors. Uh, you know, I remember when I was in an NGO myself, and I kept getting all these interview requests, and I just hated them, and I hated people who wanted to interview me to extract knowledge from my organization again, so I'm really grateful for people who took the time to do this. Um, some of the non-IRB signing participants uh, that helped me in this process have guided me since I was a teenager interested in these topics, like Rafi Santo or at the High Research Lab, some people are in the incredible Harvard communities at Bergman Klein Center, who are now at HKS Digital, uh, the Center for Civic Media here at MIT. Some are running amazing initiatives like the Youth and Social Media Lab at California State University in Fresno, and I know they're watching this live, uh, for which I'm honored. And um, also, I know that some people from my past NGO life, like Erica Smith, a lifelong mentor at Take Back the Tech in Mexico, and other friends from NGOs in Mexico are watching this. And I think that they have been extremely insightful and generous in this research process, so I want to thank them. I also want to thank, and, and I feel I already, this is like an Oscar speech, but I just want to make it visible that these projects are actually like, it takes a village, as my friend Atenea would say. 
Um, but I think that this project was actually born in my philosophy school, uh, where I wrote a thesis about youth and ethics online uh, with my undergrad advisor, who was a mesoprenian with my mother. Uh, so I think that um, it's not, again, people sort of being smart and going to grad school and having all these great ideas. I mean, it takes all the people around them to, to make that happen. And I guess now I can take this luxury because I am the last person. Um, I think that all of us who were rewriting our pieces after how many <laughs> revisions of Syria, um, <laughs> just looking at all the documents from all the classes that we had to submit and seeing how your thought changes in two years uh, in what CMS has been for me, which is like the academic space of my dreams and beyond, I think has been like a luxury that takes a lot of effort from many people who are behind the scenes and that we are very grateful for, and also the work of two classmates who are not here today but participated in our early conversations, who were Sonia Vanaschik, who is a genius who brings together reproductive rights and technology, and Laurel Carney, who's really in research in gaming, along with that of Claudia and Kayla, almost makes me want to be a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> I think I could continue giving lots of thank yous, but I have done. So with that, I will go back to youth and privacy online and say that something I never liked about academic spaces is that the Q&A has been framed as the only legitimate form of interaction. So no, I would love to hear comments, rants, critiques, and or questions. questions. <laughs> <laughs> But no, 
Um, I think that one big part of the conversation with Anne Collier and I can help Lang is that, okay, here it, here it is, the result of 20 years or more of research and understanding the ecosystem. And this is the piece of service that is missing. And yet funding it for the last few years has been extremely hard. So funding is a commonality. And the difference, I would say, is um, something really interesting in the Ciudad Azul uh, interview in Costa Rica was that, you know, it's not, okay, context for people in the US. Costa Rica is like the most developed country in Central America. And if you want to speak with someone who's an expert on Costa Rica, issues, probably sitting at the back. Um, but they're like these very developed country in Central America. And so there, are, there is a lot of awareness on these issues. However, basic uh, secure messaging services like Signal don't work there. So a lot of people try to like say, oh, you know, the thing is they're not using all these secure services that are being developed in the US. It's like, yeah, it's broken. And so you have a tension where it is a case that surveillance exists, and it is a case that there is you know, awareness of this but the infrastructure does not sort of respond to it. And so is something else that is different is the role of internet services and companies like social media companies in other countries. Uh, the I can helpline model where I can helpline is like an intermediary between Facebook and a school only works in the US where there is such thing as cooperation between all those stakeholders. When I interviewed a collective doing essentially the same work in Uruguay, they were like, I didn't even know that it was a possibility to work with Facebook directly. I didn't know escalation of reports was a thing. And so there's just like a huge imbalance of who gets to cooperate with Facebook and who doesn't. Just a sort of flat, pragmatic question. But you see, so given what's been happening with Facebook, given the, the political discourse du jour, is that an opportunity to leverage more awareness about this and put, make it more, make, take the rights issue and make that, rather than the prophylactic issue, but take the rights issue and push it forward? Is this a political moment to, uh, to seize upon, at least in this part of the time? I think we will, in fact, see many organizations, and I have already seen organizations coming out with these press releases on the topic. But something that we need to remember is that the US electoral context and the relationship between the snake oil selling company, which is Cambridge Analytica, in the very specific role of the US, is not something that looks the same in other countries. And so I am very worried when I see frameings like fake news or Cambridge Analytica get thrown into the Latin American digital rights discourse, where democracies work differently and where the manipulation machines work differently. So I feel that. I mean, there's arguments here, right? That whether fake news is a productive framing to discuss what's going on with media this year, or if it's just Trump's framing. And so if it's like a problematic framing here, how can we expect it to work seamlessly in Latin America? And I think it's kind of the same with the Cambridge Analytica fiasco and other sort of big stories. But I do think that, I mean, pragmatically, I think it's better to have more noise, even if some of the nuance is lost. Like, I am all in favor of saying, you know, with this Cambridge Analytica thing, you should shut down your Facebook. Yeah, shut it down. I am happy to, to see that effort in, in Latin America as well. How about the memes? Memes are still <laughs> <laughs> The memes will be fine as 